Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, October 12th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hi. Okay, uh, so... Let's talk about some news that broke. Uh, we've had a lot of news, actually, that has broken since the last time we talked to you guys. Uh, we had the water cooler on Friday. Uh, let's talk about this Green Lantern TV series, which I guess has finally officially been greenlit for HBO Max. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, about a year ago, we learned that Greg Berlanti, who is the producer behind the whole Arrowverse on the CW, was going to be producing a Green Lantern show for HBO Max. And now we have some more details about it. So it is going to be a 10 episode season i guess uh, one hour episodes we know that seth graham smith who wrote abraham lincoln vampire hunter and was a writer on the lego batman movie and has written a bunch of other things he's going to be uh, writing and serving as the showrunner and he is going to co-write this with mark guggen uh, mark guggenheim excuse me who also co-wrote the 2011 green lantern movies screenplay with greg berlanti so there's some like uh, i guess green lantern veterans coming back into the fold here <laughs> And um, the plot details, uh, we, you know, they're still relatively vague this early out, but the show is going to be depicting the adventures of a multitude of lanterns. So this is not just going to be a, you know, a single origin story or anything like that. Uh, Guy Gardner is mentioned, uh, Jessica Cruz, Simon Baz, and Alan Scott, who is uh, in the comics a gay character. Um, all of those are characters who have worn the Green Lantern mantle or or donned the rings or whatever you want to you want to say they're part of the green lantern core and um characters like sinestro and kilowog all, are also going to be introduced in this series and uh brand new heroes are also going to join the ranks of the green lantern core as well so um yeah that's the big news i mean i'll say for that green lantern movie the most interesting aspect to, to for me as someone who has never read the green lantern comics was when they went to like the Green Lantern Corps, uh, like uh, intergalactic headquarters, whatever it was, and we see all like 
all those alien races of like green lanterns like gathered together i'm like oh i want to see that movie um so i guess i might be a little excited for this tv series but it does seem weird that like you have this movie called green lantern and it's written by these two guys and it was universally panned and everybody didn't like it and we're gonna bring those two guys back to make a tv series uh yeah it's a bit of an odd choice i think but um i mean i think in the years since uh especially greg berlanti has has shown that you know he has a pretty good grasp on what superhero television can be in the modern era um and you know he, he's like one of the the biggest creative forces in that space right now so um, maybe just the format change and not having, you know, a, a, whatever, a $200 million budget or however much it costs to make that Green Lantern movie. Maybe that will like ease the pressure of, you know, having too many cooks in the kitchen and these guys will actually be able to uh, streamline their vision a little bit and and make something that's a little bit more um, coherent and, and that people like more. I don't know. Who, who knows? But it sounds like this isn't going to be cheap because what or it's like two of these Green Lanterns are earthbound and or one of them is earthbound and the rest are integral intergalactic. So like, that's going to be expensive, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Maybe it's more just about, um, you know, taking off all of the different writers that came in here. And it really sounds like it's just going to be, um, Seth Graham Smith and Mark Guggenheim who are co-writing the show. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be having, you know, a big writer's room or anything like that. So it seems like maybe the, the chances are that we'll actually I'm not saying it's going to be great. It could be a total disaster, but at least it'll be a disaster that's from a very specific view- viewpoint instead of just, you know, a sort of generic mishmash like the movie ended up being. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to go to Chris here because, like, Chris, I know you are usually very uh, cynical when it comes to comic book movies or superhero f- films and stuff like that. Um, what do you think? What do you make of this? Is this something that you'd be interested in checking out? Uh, I mean, I've never really gotten into Green Lantern as a character, so I don't really have strong feelings any either way. I mean, you know, if, if when it happens, if there's a, a trailer and the trailer looks cool, I'll definitely give it a shot. But I'm not exactly like, yeah, Green Lantern. Like, I, I, I have really no connection to that character. Okay, let's talk about Spider-Man. Last week, we had some talk about Spider-Man and how... Uh, Jamie Foxx is returning as Electro, and uh, we kind of theorized that, you know, the, the multiverse would be involved and that, you know, there's this movie coming out, Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness, and that that could be connected to this third Spider-Man movie. And now we finally have, I guess, some kind of connective tissue there in a confirmation. Chris, tell us about it. Yes, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange is now part of the Spider-Man 3 cast. Um, it's it's not really clear how big a part he's going to have, but um, THR, who broke this story, claimed, um, and again, this is might be just them claiming it without any actual proof to back it up, but their claim is that uh, Doctor Strange will fit into the, the mentor role for Spider-Man, the way that uh, Tony Stark served as as the mentor in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming and Nick Fury, although it was technically an alien disguised as Nick Fury, sort of took over that role for uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. So, uh, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. And again, like, like Peter said, there's also a possibility that this uh, connects the film to the multiverse, the real multiverse, not the 
the made up multiverse that uh, Jake Gyllenhaal mentioned in <laughs> in in Far From Home. Yeah. So uh, Peter Parker's first mentor, uh, his his um, his uncle died. Uh, Tony Stark died. Uh, Mysterio, I guess, was kind of a mentor and uh, Peter Parker killed him uh does peter parker need any more mentors and also does this mean that dr strange is gonna meet his demise <laughs> i i mean that that later part might be true um uh, you know i gotta say i i you know I, even though i i've enjoyed the the mcu spider-man films i thought homecoming was better than far from home personally i kind of am getting sick of this trend that this version of spider-man constantly needs to have a mentor like can he just strike out on his own at this point i you know i think he's 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 at the point where he doesn't really need a mentor every time he shows up but uh that just might be me maybe that's the overarching arch of this of this trilogy did i mean maybe it's peter learning that he doesn't need a mentor and he can be his own yeah that spider man hope hopefully <laughs> yes he's, he's no longer a spider boy he's a spider man uh, okay, let's talk about some other Marvel movies. Let's talk about the ones that are outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've kind of wondered how is Disney going to, you know, handle those? Like, are they going to take any canon from them? Are they going to label them in any certain way? And we, we might have an answer to that. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so obviously we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe that's established um, by Marvel Studios. All those movies are connected from Iron Man up through... Uh, Spider-Man Far From Home was the last one. Um, but before um, you know all this happened, a lot of Marvel's comic book characters were spread around other studios. And 20th Century Fox had a bunch of them. But now 20th Century Fox is situated under the Disney banner. So movies like the uh, X-Men franchise, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Elektra all belong back to Disney and Marvel Studios. And some of those movies have started to pop up on Disney+. And for the uninitiated, it might be rather confusing as to which movies are connected to each other and if char- what characters exist in each other's uh, universe. So there's a new category on Disney+, Plus that has been labeled Marvel Legacy. And that includes um, at least the movies that are so far available on Disney+, Plus that are Marvel movies from Fox, uh, which so far is X-Men, X-Men 2, X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men Apocalypse, and the 2005 Fantastic Four and the 2015 Fantastic Four. So it seems like that um, kind of in the same way that Disney created a new branch of like Star Wars Legends, all of those stories that were you know um, created in between the time of the um, original trilogy and the prequels before Disney took over Lucasfilm. They're taking the same approach here with all these Marvel movies that were made uh, before and even during uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So to create a little bit of a a differentiation designation. But at at the same time, it's kind of weird because unless you know what Marvel Legacy means, unless someone explains it to you, (laughs) it doesn't really help any. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like Legends might... They they (laughs) might might want to borrow that same title from Star Wars. Do you think this is going to become a widely adopted term, or do you think this is just something that, like, you know, the Disney Plus guys are like, we need to have a category for this. What should we call it? Yeah, I don't think it'll be widely adopted, only because, like, it's just a way to categorize these these older movies. Obviously, there aren't going to be any new Marvel Legacy movies. All, All the new Marvel movies, at least as far as we know, will be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, since Marvel Studios will be producing them. If anything, I would bet that this is just 
like, like you know, like we said, not only does it help you know differentiate these movies, but but when the time comes for Marvel to reboot X Men and Fantastic Four, it'll help people so that they don't look and see these X Men movies and be like, oh wait, what what are these? Are these connected to the new X Men movies? <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk about we you know we've been talking about what movies are actually going to hit theaters and one of these soul we've talked about quite a bit i think all of us were under the impression that this actually wasn't going to hit theaters and was going to be released on premium vod and uh half of that is true it's not it's skipping theaters but it's not going premium vod it's going direct to disney plus subscribers chris tell us about it yes soul will now hit Disney Plus on uh, December 25th, Christmas Day. Um, and that's that's domestically. That's in the U.S. Um, in uh, the rest of the world, and especially in places where they don't have Disney Plus, there is um, there are plans to release this theatrically. But here in the, the U.S. of A, Soul is going right to Disney Plus on December 25th. And unlike Mulan, you won't have to pay an additional uh, premium price. You'll just be able to stream it. Yeah, what was that whole thing called? Like Premiere something? I don't know. It was such a bad, badly. I think they just called it Premiere Access, maybe. Premiere Access, yeah. Everything has to be Access, Max, Plus, something like that. Um, Why do you think Disney has decided to release this direct to Disney Plus subscribers instead of trying to, you know, milk, you know, 20, 30 bucks? like they did with Mulan because I mean, all the, all these families are going to be home during Christmas. They need content to watch and right. not everybody wants to watch, you know, the next Netflix original holiday movie. So like, you know, why do you think they decided over, you know, this being like a loss leader rather than, you know, a moneymaker? Um, there could be a variety of reasons. One could be that they didn't make as much money off of Mulan as they were hoping to, and they're going to nix that idea. Another is they, they might just want to focus on subscribers because, you know, by the time Soul hits Disney Plus, uh, the new season of The Mandalorian will be over. And, you know, uh, while Disney has a lot of, you know, good legacy titles, they don't have, you know, as much uh, original programming that gets people excited as, as like the Mandalorian does. So it could just be they're thinking ahead, thinking, all right, rather than everyone <laughs> cancel their Disney plus subscription, the minute the Mandalorian ends, we're going to give them something to hold on for. We're going to say, all right, Mandalorian is over, but here's a new Pixar movie. So uh, th- that I think is what, you know, you know, I'm just guessing here. Obviously I don't know what goes on inside <laughs> the heads of Disney CEOs, but that that's my guess. Yeah, I mean, Disney Plus has already, like, surpassed their expectations for how many subscribers they wanted to have. Like, I think they've hit, they already hit, like, their goal that they wanted to hit in, like, the, the end of year five or something like that. Um, my guess is they're probably wanting to spike these numbers because they know, you know, theatrical, their theatrical business is not making as much money this year. And their parks and resorts business is... is going to make a lot lot less so i'm guessing they're hoping they could spike the numbers for uh you know the next earnings call possibly or not spike the numbers i i should say but like be able to say you know we we got this many more millions of subscribers um out of this you know this soul drop uh so th- that's what my thought is it's it's kind of like 
you know, oh, don't look at the bad numbers over there. Look at these numbers. So, um, I don't know. Uh, but the interesting thing here is Seoul has screened for some press because it, it's showing at uh, Film Festival internationally. So we have the first reviews. So, Ben, like, how is Seoul? Evidently, it is very, very good. Uh, the Independent says, not only does Seoul live up to Pixar's own impossibly high standards, but it represents the very best the studio has to offer. Beauty, humor, heart, and a gut punch of an existential crisis. Um, and then the rap says that uh, Soul is perhaps the most existentially ambitious film ever attempted by Disney, and yet it pops with colorful visuals and gentle wisdom while the story clips along, despite the dizzying height of the concept. So, um, you know, th there are several reactions here that you can read. Uh, we'll link this post in the show notes, but it sounds like this is like a, you know, a, a new Pixar classic. And that, I don't know, hearing that. It becomes kind of, I feel conflicted here. Like, I'm glad that we're going to get to see it this year, but if it's a new Pixar classic, I'm kind of sad that we're not going to get to see this on the big screen with an audience for the first time as intended. Like, are you at all disappointed? Yeah, I'm bummed. Um, but in the same way that I'm bummed that I won't be able to see or or I choose not to see Tenet in IMAX this year, you know, I'm yeah. I'm bummed that it's like a case of spectacularly bad timing, <laughs> and and I wish that things were different. But I'm also very glad that we're getting to see this movie this year, and I'm glad that they're not holding it out and and you know pulling the Mulan thing because that's really interesting that they've decided to not charge and just um you know I've seen a lot of people say like okay I think that means that the Mulan tactic was like a, an abysmal failure within Disney because otherwise they would just keep doing that over and over and over again the fact that they basically like pump the brakes on that $30 or $40, however much it was to on top of the, uh, you know, the rental price um, that they pump the brakes on that tactic um, is really fascinating now. And I, I'm, you know, as somebody who already subscribes to Disney plus and doesn't necessarily feel like paying <laughs> for, for more stuff, I'm glad that we'll have, you know, uh, another potentially great Pixar movie to watch uh, this Christmas season. Yeah. And because it's Disney, we'll never know the numbers of, unless they re decide to release them, we'll never know how many people, you know, paid to rent Mulan through that, through that thing. But I think one of the numbers I saw that was like the best guess was like 3 million people in the first week. And that would have been like $93 million, which I guess is the equivalent. If you're like splitting the money theatrically, that's like a 150, $160 million theatrical because, you know, the exhibitors get some of that. And then Disney ends up, you know, with like the 93 so that doesn't sound poor to me but the, you know those estimates i think are based on you know how many people uh downloaded the disney plus app that week and you know it, it's it's all these guesses it's mm -hmm. very 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 big guesses uh but yeah i'm i don't know i'm, I'm very curious to to see what happens here and see how many subscribers they can get with soul because soul is also not like a you know, Mulan is a, a name brand and mm -hmm. I, I know Pixar is a name brand, but they've had some failures recently. And um, so, so I'm, I'm not sure, like, is that going to attract people that aren't already subscribed to Disney plus to Disney plus? <laughs> what do you think? Oh man. Uh, well, I mean, if there's, if the early word and, and uh, word of mouth and stuff like that is really good, then, 
maybe it will, especially when people realize that they don't have to pay extra on top of it. I, I can see people, you know, do, being like, all right, I'm going to bite the bullet if I haven't subscribed to Disney Plus, you know, for the Christmas season. Um, you know, if we've got uh, kids who aren't in school and, and stuff like that, and they're just looking for things to do. I mean, that sounds like a pretty ideal time to do it. And if you have this like supposedly really, really good Pixar movie, you know, as the cherry on top, it, it seems like it would be a good way to, to do it. But yeah, I, I agree that there's, it's going to be a little bit tougher than um, relying on the name brand thing, but I, I'm glad that they're taking that tactic because I, I would love to see more original stuff from Pixar and Disney instead of just constantly relying on these, you know, franchises and, and pieces of IP that we know already. Yeah. And it's probably something to it that like, you know, families are going to be stuck in a house together for a week and like the parents are going to be like, oh, if we subscribe to Disney Plus, you know, we, we can get some quiet time for a couple of hours. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, uh, bigger, like uh, more adult movies, uh, movies that uh, appeal to a wider quadrant of people don't seem to be going to the direct to streaming route. We, we've theorized in the past of, you know, Wonder Woman 1984. Will that get released like premium VOD? And now we we have an answer brad tell us about it it would seem that wonder woman 1984 is being held for theaters um right now it's supposed to debut on christmas day um but depending on how things go over the next couple of months we don't necessarily know um if the pandemic will allow that to still be a viable option for warner brothers uh you know regal cinemas has closed down their theaters um, in the United States, with um, the exception of some locations in California, um, AMC and Cinemark said that they won't be closing their doors. But again, it's up to whether or not the audience, you know, is willing to come back to theaters for a movie like this um, around Christmas time, uh, which is during a season when, you know, sickness is kind of running rampant. Flu season picks up, the cold weather gets more people sick. And uh, if it so happens that maybe the movie won't uh, be able to be released in theaters it sounds like we shouldn't expect it to hit vod because patty jenkins um seems to have indicated on twitter albeit in a uh, kind of perplexing way that they're not even talking about releasing the movie direct to streaming because uh, she retweeted some uh, a fan who had linked to a story saying that the movie was going to be released in theaters and on streaming christmas day at the same time um the, the tweet says, told you, Wonder Woman 1984 will be released in theaters and streaming platforms on Christmas Day worldwide. And then she retweeted this and said, correct, direct-to-streaming is not even being discussed. We are still 100% behind the theatrical experience for Wonder Woman 1984 and supporting our beloved theater business. So I'm not sure if she just read too quickly or, like, didn't and didn't really you know, understand what she was, what the tweet that she was retweeting. But the fact that she's, you know, flat out says direct to streaming is not even being discussed. Seems like it probably means the movie won't go to streaming at the same time. Um, it's uh, available on Christmas day, but I, I do wonder though, I, I suppose there's the possibility that there could be a differentiation between streaming and premium VOD, because there is a difference as far as the lingo that we use, you know, streaming, means it's going to Netflix or Hulu or HBO Max. But premium VOD means you're paying a price just to rent and be able to watch that title in a limited window. So there's always the chance that maybe she's tap dancing and being specific about it. But at the same time, the article in question that this person tweeted that Patty retweeted 
specifically um, messes up that delineation because they say streaming, but also say people will pay a premium price for it. So they don't know the difference either. Um, so I, I would anticipate that it's probably just the most, the easiest explanation, which is that they're not even talking about releasing it on streaming or VOD and they want it to be released first in theaters. Yeah. My thought is if Marvel or Disney is not going to release Black Widow on premium VOD or streaming, <laughs> that there's no way Wonder Woman 1984 is going to get that kind yeah, of treatment. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and also over the weekend, we learned that Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins are going to re-team for a movie. Brad, tell us about that. Yeah, over the weekend, uh, there was um, big news that uh, Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins will be making a Cleopatra movie at Paramount Pictures. Um, Now, this is separate from the Cleopatra movie that's long been in development at Sony Pictures for roughly a decade now. There have been directors like Paul Greengrass and David Fincher and uh, Denny Villeneuve who have been um, attached to this project. But this is a totally new one at Paramount Pictures that Gal Gadot um, pitched, came up with the idea for. Um, She uh, got together the uh, writer of Alita Battle Angel to research and dive into this. And she already had previous um, experience by writing Alexander for Oliver Stone. And uh, so they're working on getting this project together. It's the the first one um, that is being that has been picked up by Paramount's uh, president Emma Watts. Uh, Wonder Woman producer Charles Roven uh, is producing it through Atlas Entertainment, and Godot is uh, producing it herself through um, her own production banner as well. So uh, this sounds like it could be a really big project. Cleopatra, um, you know, is uh, one of the most famous historical figures in ancient history. Uh, and obviously, you know, if Sony's been spending so much time trying to get this off the ground, there must be some kind of viable, uh, you know, epic story here to be told. We, we've seen it on the big screen before, back in the 60s with Elizabeth Taylor. Um, and so, yeah, this has a potential to be very big. And this actually could uh, kind of light a fire under Sony's ass to get their version together finally, because apparently uh, Forrest Gump writer Eric Roth uh, is currently working on rewriting that script. So we could reach a point where we might have dueling Cleopatra movies. Well, it seems like a perfect pairing of filmmaker and actress for for this project. So I'm I'm excited to see what comes of this. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about the Social Network and a possible sequel. That I mean, it seems like Aaron Sorkin is interested. Chris, what do we know? Uh, yeah. So as we all know, a lot has changed both in the world and the world of Facebook since the Social Network came out ten years ago. And um, since that film has come out, Aaron Sorkin has said in the past that he's definitely interested in writing a sequel. Uh, And he also added that Scott Rudin, who produced The Social Network, is also interested in making a sequel. Uh, And now uh, Aaron Sorkin's doing press for uh, Trial of the Chicago 7, his new movie. And the subject came up again. And he said once again that he's definitely interested in making a sequel. He even has a source material for it, which is a book called Zucked, which is written by Roger McName, who was an early Facebook investor. So he has um, inside information about what went down there. And it's all about, you know, how Facebook just got even worse, especially in the 21st century, where it uh, contributed greatly to the downfall of democracy as we know it, because everything is a hellhole nightmare. Um, But Aaron Sorkin does have one condition, and that is he won't do a sequel unless David Fincher comes back to direct. So, uh, you know, nothing's official here. They're not saying, yes, this is happening, but 
if for some reason David Fincher gets on board with this and everyone is agreed to do it, it might actually happen. You never know. Yeah, I mean that's a good condition to to have there. I would you know I would watch this if David Fincher was was back. I guess the question I have two questions here for you, Chris. Uh, do we want a social network sequel or do we need a social network sequel? I mean, I don't know if we need it, but I'm definitely interested in in, in watching one just because you know I love the social network. It's it's a great movie. It's one of the best movies of the 21st century. But I do think like I said, so much has changed, you know, and even that movie, even though it portrays Mark Zuckerberg as, you know, a jerk, it kind of gives him sort of like a mini redemption in the end. Cause it has Rashida Jones's character being like, ah, oh, you're not that bad of a guy, Mark. And uh, since that movie's come out, we've learned that no, he is that bad of a guy. In fact, he's probably even worse. So I would actually be interested in seeing a sequel that delves into how much more of an awful person in regards to his company, Mark Zuckerberg has become. So, and especially if, you know, I I will watch anything David Fincher makes. So if David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin are are getting the band back together, so to speak, I'm in. Chris, would you say this is like a, almost like a super villain origin story? I would say that. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. I think I read that somewhere. Yes. I, I guess, um, I guess my other question is like, what would this be about? Because, what you're saying, I think, are larger things. And the first movie was about a, you know, one man or one kid or whatever. Right. You know, like, how do you how do you tell the story of what Facebook has done to this world if you're just concentrating on the the person? In, like, do you know what I mean? Like, is is there a good way of doing it? I, I know, you know. Aaron Sorkin attempted to do that with Jobs and, you know, showing how Steve Jobs kind of changed this world with Apple. But I feel like once it becomes like this big company where many more people are involved, it becomes harder to kind of center it around one person. Well, I mean, this book that uh, Sorkin says he might base a sequel off of, it's about how um, this Roger McName guy and other people within Facebook started coming to Zuckerberg and saying, look, we've got a problem with, you know, just how uh, the election is being treated and how, you know, people are manipulating Facebook for all these, you know, insane (laughs) conspiracy theory groups. And uh, we need to do something about it. And Mark Zuckerberg basically just shrugging it off. I mean, like, that's not my problem. So I really think that's the way you tackle the story with people coming to him and saying, Hey, we have a problem here. And Mark Zuckerberg being like, yeah, I don't care. So there, there's your story right there. Uh, maybe this would make a better like limited series than it would uh, a movie. I feel like, I don't know. I'm not sure how you even tackle that amount of time. I don't know. I don't know. I'd be interested. Again, if David Fincher's involved, I'm watching it. Actually, even if David Fincher is not involved, you know, Aaron Sorkin, I'm, I'm watching it. Uh, but let's talk about our final star for today. And that is that Disney is developing a movie based on the attraction Space Mountain. Ben, tell us about it. Yes, another theme park ride movie is in the works. So um, if you've ever ridden Space Mountain before, it's basically just a uh, an indoor, dark, space-themed roller coaster. There is not necessarily a 
a traditional narrative applied to the ride, even in so much as like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean has a narrative where there's like, you know, you can sort of track the events over the course of the ride. There's not really any of that in the Space Mountain attraction. Um, but nonetheless, Disney is developing a Space Mountain movie and Joby Harold, who is the screenwriter behind the upcoming uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi show on Disney Plus, and he wrote... King Arthur, The Legend of the Sword, is uh, going to be writing and producing this new Space Mountain movie. So uh, the big question, obviously, is like, okay, so what the hell do you do if there isn't really a story here? And according to The Hollywood Reporter, who broke this news, the sort of nebulous nature of this ride is actually kind of a positive in this situation because uh, Joby Harold is basically just getting a free you know, a free take at it. Like he can basically do whatever he wants. The The story is going to be created whole cloth with the ride acting as inspiration is the quote there. So, um, you know, very vague. And uh, I, I guess, like I said, maybe that vagueness is going to end up being a good thing for this movie because it won't necessarily have to hit those familiar beats or moments or cross things off a list or, you know, pause and wink at the audience and say, Hey, remember this from the ride? Like it'll be able to just sort of tell whatever story it wants to tell and have that space mountain, uh, branding all over it. Um, Peter as like the big Disney person. I'm curious what you think about this. You know, I, I'm excited for the reasons you say there's, there's really, it, it is a reason to, for Disney to green light a big, space sci-fi movie and you know because there's a brand name here but there isn't there isn't any weight there isn't any baggage there isn't any you know there is a fan base of space fan but like it would be very hard to disappoint them i think the only like touchstones you really need to to have in this is maybe the signature architecture of the the building has to somehow some way be incorporated and uh Maybe the fact that our characters go into like kind of a, a spaceship bobsled at some point and have to navigate through like, you know, some kind of action scene. But aside from that, like literally, you know, you could do whatever you want. So I, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Michael Giacchino uh, has done the score for Space Mountain since uh, 2005. Uh, I, I said this in our Slack channel but the Disneyland version of Space Mountain actually opened two days after Star Wars A New Hope opened uh, on uh, May 25th, 1977. So uh, it has a legacy there in sci-fi. You know, I'm not sure what the movie is. It's interesting because Disney has been trying to develop a Space Mountain movie for some time now. Like there was a project called Paladin that uh, was in development. It, or That was the code name for it, but it was actually a Space Mountain movie. And that got dropped. I heard it was a great script and that got dropped because Disney purchased Lucasfilm and they were making, you know, a Star Wars movie every year. So they were like, oh, we don't need to make another space movie. We're already going to have a space movie every year. Um, but now that they're not making a Star Wars movie every year, maybe there's a, a reason to make a Space Mountain movie. Um, but uh, how do you think a Space Mountain movie could fare against the other Disney theme park to movie adaptations? Well, I mean, if you look at the track record there, it's not great. You know, you've got the Country Bears and Tower of Terror <laughs> and the Haunted Mansion and stuff like that. And then, like, who knows how Jungle Cruise is going to be. Um, you've got Tomorrowland. That was, you know, very mixed, I would say. The first Pirates um, of the Caribbean. 
Right. That that's the one I think the North Star of Disney theme park ride movies is like that's the one that everybody is is constantly chasing and saying, hey, it worked once, so maybe it'll work again. Maybe we can get another Pirates of the Caribbean. But I mean, just like look at the sequels of those movies and like even that own franchise can't capture what made that first movie great. So um I I, I don't know. I, I mean I think just the odds are in this project's favor to be better than the country bears um, and a lot of these other projects. So maybe it'll end up on the, the better side of things, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm trying to be optimistic and hopeful here and think that this complete blank slate will, will mean that um, they can do something super creative and uh, you know, maybe um, I don't know, maybe it won't feel like so much like uh, you know, just boxes being checked along the way. Yeah, in your story, in your header image, you use this photo that I took uh, that is a mural that's right across from Space Mountain in Disneyland, is across from like Star Tours. And it's this mural of like kind of imagining, I guess, g- giving Space Mountain like some kind of thematic backstory of some kind. Uh, it shows like uh, the building that we know as Space Mountain taking off, like it was a almost like a UFO rocket ship into space. Uh, so if you've never seen that mural, I'd say check, uh, you know, click on over to Ben's story, uh, check that out, because uh, I think that's the only, I guess, kind of, um, like I said, touchstone that you might have to hit is to include that uh, that classic um, architecture of that of, of the ride. But yeah, I don't know. I'm interested, you know, as, as a theme park fan, I'm always interested in these things, even though they oftentimes turn out poorly. But okay, that does it for today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And play, please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs>